morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Lindsay Field. Um, I have been here once before, but it's been a minute, so if you have no idea who I am, that's okay. Um, I work for an organization called Sojourn, uh, where I help college students in Boston discover God's dream for their life, and I absolutely love it. Uh, but Katie asked me to speak today um, on this continuing series that you guys are doing out here, uh, Life in the Kingdom, where we're looking at different parables that Jesus told and just trying to understand what he's saying about the kingdom of God. And if you were here last week, um, Katie just let us know that a parable is simply a story with a point. Um, so the parable we're going to be looking at today, as Kate read, read for us already, is the one of the Good Samaritan. I do have to say, I, have to, I had to keep double-checking because some reason in my head I would panic that I did the wrong one. Um, so we're all, we are all on the same page, though, so that's good. Uh, so Luke chapter 10. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So anytime you speak on something as well known as this story, the Good Samaritan, there is kind of this piece of you that's like, I'm going to be the one to find something different to talk about. Like you want to kind of have that like new and relevant insight and not just repeat the same things that we've been talking about for the last 2000 years, but that's not going to happen. Um, there's a chance that everything I say to you today, you will have already heard. Uh, and let's be honest, like I prepped this by listening to other sermons and reading blogs and articles and books and stuff like that. So these words aren't even really my own, um, but, but that's okay. Uh, because the reason the story has lasted and transcended our faith and become a part of our cultural narrative is because the message, even though it's simple, it's worth hearing over and over and over again. So my hope for today is not that you hear something mind-blowing, brand new message, but that you can be reminded of this simple message that Jesus has for us, which is to love one another. And as well known as this parable is, I still find it helpful to start off with some context. 
Um, and again, you may already know all of this. That's fine. Uh, but I know I can re like use review from time to time, so I figured maybe other people could too. So first of all, the lawyer in the story or the expert of the law um, is not really what we would think of today. So the law they're talking about here is the Torah, um, what we know as like the five, first five books of the Old Testament. So he's not necessarily an expert in like government law, but religious law. Um, and the summation that he gives to Jesus, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, that was actually a very common and accepted way to sum up the Torah. Uh, so that first part about loving God comes out of Deuteronomy chapter 6. Uh, it's actually known as the Shema, uh, or a part of the Shema, uh, which was one of the most important prayer, Jewish prayers of the time. And it was recited multiple times a day. And that second part about loving your neighbor comes out of Leviticus 19, uh, in the very descriptive section, various laws. Uh, so this question and exchange is really just kind of about, um, do we agree on the point of the Torah? And on, that, on the surface, the answer is yes, but, you know, Jesus very rarely works on the surface. So uh, we'll get to more of that <laughs> later. Um, now on to the Samaritans and the Jews. And to sum it up, they hated each other, like hated each other. Uh, it was actually common practice at the time that when Jewish people would recite their daily prayers, they would tack on at the end, please let there be no Samaritans at the resurrection. So yeah, like the feelings went deep between these two groups of people. Um, we also have the characters of the priest and the Levite. Uh, in simple terms, these are just two religious leaders. They worked at the temple, they keep the laws of the Torah, they're Jewish, um, but yeah, just to keep it simple, they're, they're religious leaders. And finally, the setting of the story is actually important too. So the road to Jericho uh, at the time was one of the most dangerous roads there was. So it was an almost 3,000 foot decline through the hills and it had constant turns and blocked views for like long stretches of times. So this was extremely isolated. So it really was the perfect place for robbers to beat people up and have an easy exit. And, and that actually happened quite commonly. So we have this story that Jesus is telling of a Jewish man beat up on the side of the road and two good religious Jewish people walking by. So the expected outcome here is that one of them stops to help and thereby reinforcing the Jewish lawyer's worldview and making everybody listening feel really good about themselves, which, you know, is exactly what Jesus is known for doing. Um, <laughs> so uh, when Jesus makes the Samaritan not just the hero of the story, but the one to actually be imitated, like, you can imagine how well that went over uh, with the crowd. I mean, even when Jesus asked the lawyer who was the good neighbor, like, he can't even say the Samaritan. He can't even say the word. Uh, instead, he says the one who showed mercy. So, once again, like, Jesus is here stirring things up and flipping the narrative and just reminding us that God's kingdom is one that is upside down. So, with that super detailed uh, retelling, uh, I just want to look back at one specific verse uh, in the story. 
So verse 29 uh, says this, but he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Did you know that all of the research and all of the polls and all of the everythings uh, show that about 90% of people believe that they love more than the average person? So first of all, that just shows like a deep misunderstanding of how averages work. Uh, But it also shows that most people believe themselves to be loving. Well, actually, it shows that most people believe themselves to be more loving than the people next to them. I'm sure that the lawyer who questioned Jesus was one of those 90%. Like, this, this guy is, like, he's sure that he's a good person, right? He, he follows the commands, and he wants that goodness to be confirmed. He also wants to know that he's loving the right people, the ones that he's supposed to, the ones who deserve it. And this is where Jesus and the lawyer disagree on the meaning of the law. He wanted to justify himself. This man is looking for a loophole. The problem is there aren't loopholes when it comes to loving people. You either love somebody or you don't. And we aren't talking about this ambiguous idea of love that we use in the English language. Like, I can love true crime and I can love my nephew, but there's really no distinguishing difference between the word love there, right? I do love them in different ways, just to be clear. Um, But you wouldn't know that just from the words that I'm saying, right? So when love is talked about in the scriptures, it's used as a verb. There's action and substance to it. It's not just like a passive feeling or an uncontrollable emotion. But I do have a suspicion that when this lawyer uses the word love, And when he's talking about loving his neighbor, there probably isn't much substance behind his meaning. He's asking, who is my neighbor? Who do I have to love? Who's a neighbor and who is not? So this question, just at its core, sets up the idea that there are some people worth loving and others that aren't. That love is an obligation or a task to be completed. It sets up an identity based in who we aren't and what we're against. This question asks us who's in and who's out, and as long as we're in, it's all good. But the story that Jesus tells here highlights that if you think you're loving, you probably aren't. And if you think you've got it, you probably don't. And if you think you're in that 90%, you probably aren't. Because once you've made it, once you've gotten it, once you understand, you can stop. You don't have to keep asking questions or growing or or changing or trying or, or anything. You're done. And that's just not really how this works. There is no end when it comes to loving people. So we're gonna come back to that in just a second, but now we're gonna shift gears just slightly and talk about anthropology. Uh So we've all heard the phrase personal space, right? Like, there's this idea that there's an invisible boundary around each person, and it's considered, like, really bad form if you cross that boundary without permission. The boundary is different for each person, 
and it can actually be highly influenced by culture uh, or if you live in a city or not. You know, like your boundary is probably a lot different if you're riding the T than if you're just like walking through a park. Uh, and I think COVID has also had an enormous influence on what is considered acceptable when it comes to personal space. And it's actually probably widened our boundaries a bit. But this idea of circles of space uh, is actually a, a real thing, and it's called proxemics. And it was created by this guy, Edward Hall, in 1967. So basically, proxemics looks at the way you use your space to interact with people and how that use is altered based on culture and relationship. So uh, there's four basic circles in this idea of proxemics. We have a, oh, it's already up there. Um, and so we have, first of all, you have like your public space, which is like used, this idea of public speaking, right? Going about your day, that, that type of space that feels comfortable. Uh, you have your social space, uh, small, like it's more um, like closer relationships, right? Uh, interactions amount, among acquaintances. Then you have your personal space, which that's kind of reserved for good friends and family. And again, this is talking about distances. So like you'd rather have a stranger really far away from you than you would like your mom. Maybe, maybe not for you personally, but in general. <laughs> Um, and then you have that inner space, which is really that, like, the smallest distance when you're embracing somebody, when you're whispering, touching, etc. So it would be, like, really weird if I were to give this sermon while whispering in your ear, right? <laughs> like, that would make everybody super uncomfortable for a lot of reasons. But one of those reasons, it's a, it's a misuse of this idea of space. Um... We also don't really know each other, so I feel like any type of interaction in that inner circle would maybe be a little weird. Um, but at the same time, if somebody were to like get up here and break up with their significant other, like that would also make us super uncomfortable. Um, again, for a lot of reasons. Uh, but it's a misuse of those spaces. It's it's what taking taking what should be an inner or personal interaction and it's making it public. So the circles don't really match up. So that's kind of this idea. Um, and while the circles aren't meant to be rigid and they're supposed to be somewhat flexible, like they do give a lot of information and context for relationships and interpersonal interactions. Um, and while proxemics is really about physical space and distance, uh, I do think that it translates super easily to emotional distance and relationships. Um, I mean, I definitely have my trusted people that I share much more intimate details about my life with. You know, like not everything about me is meant for the public space. So when I think about what emotional proxemics looks like, I imagine that it would look something like this. So you have your public space where it's like basic details about yourself, you know, maybe something that uh, you'd put on a resume or that like somebody could Google about you. Um, your social space might be those social media posts, you know, a little bit more personal, um, but still fairly tailored. Uh, you, then you have your personal space where things that your mom knows or, or there's stories that your mom knows, right, that they share at like the worst possible times about you. Like that's kind of what I imagine in that space. Um, or the stories that your friends have about you. Um, 
And then that inner space, which is really like your core people, maybe a, a partner or a best friend, the things that your therapist forces you to share, like those things, right? Um, so, yeah, we have this idea that only like a few people are allowed in that inner space um, and are like there's only a select group that are not allowed to know the real me and access my heart. Um, and speaking of that, my therapist did tell me that next week we're going to work on uh, why I have hard, such a hard time trusting people. So if you do know a good therapist, I am in the market for a new one. Um, so, yeah. But uh, the point is, we only let very few people into that innermost space, right? Um, and, like, if you're anything like me, I could probably count on one hand and maybe not even use all of it uh, for those people that are in that space with me. But here's the problem with not letting people in, is that we love each other best and we're best loved when we exist within those inner spaces. It's in those inner spaces when we are the most authentic version of ourselves. And whether that authentic version is like dancing for joy with a a life goal realized or curled into a fetal position in a deep depression or, or somewhere in between, when we allow people into those spaces with us, we invite them to truly know us and, and see us. But that's also like really scary, right? So it does make me think of the C.S. Lewis quote where he says, to love is to be vulnerable. And I hate being vulnerable. Um, you see my trust issues from earlier, but uh, being vulnerable allows the opportunity for somebody to hurt you in a very real way. You know, it means that I can't do it all all on my own, and it leaves me without the control. And none of that sounds fun, at least to me. It's so much easier for me to enter into somebody else's inner space and show love to them than to allow somebody to care for me. The only thing worse is when I'm, like, supposed to love myself, uh, which means that I conveniently leave the as-yourself part off the love-your-neighbor command. Like, nobody likes to be vulnerable. But we also all know the beauty that can exist when somebody is vulnerable with us. So I think we would just all kind of prefer this was like a one-way thing, right? Or like we could be vulnerable at a distance. Uh, So then for me, the next question becomes like, why? Why do we love our neighbor? And why do we open ourselves up to be loved? Do we do it because we're supposed to, because God commanded us to? No, because then, like, if that's the only reason, then we're just the priest and the Levite in the story. We're following the commands without understanding the point of any of it. So 1 Corinthians 13, super popular wedding verse, right? And rightly so, it's, it's a really great passage about love, what love is, and how important love is. It's perfect for a wedding. Uh, But those first three verses in the chapter uh, also provide us a look at the point. And spoiler alert, it's not about following the rules. So 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 3 says this. 
If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. When you look at the way the Samaritan loves in this story, it's not a sentimental kind of care or kindness. It's dirty and it's messy and it's awkward and it's sacrificial and it's open-ended. I mean, it's literally open-ended. Like he leaves an open tab at the end. And it's for his enemy. This love is not out of some kind of obligation. This is way beyond obligation. It's intimate and it's vulnerable. So why? Why do we love and why do we open ourselves up for the same? Love. We love out of love. We love because there's some point of us that understands the beauty and healing that being loved brings about. We love because we believe that people are worth being loved. And we love because without it, nothing really matters. We love because Christ first loved us. It's through this love that we also find ourselves entering into those inner spaces with God. It's not through the temple or prayers or burnt sacrifices. It's not about what we stand against. It's not how this lawyer has been assuming it all works. But it's also not impossible. There is a way in. We just have to be willing to let go of our assumptions and what we think it should be. We have to stop thinking of ourselves as part of that 90% uh, that's doing it better than those around us. And we need to start recognizing that the odds are we've gotten it wrong. We need to start admitting that most of the time we're not the Samaritan in the story. The thing is, when Jesus is telling this story, he's actively making his way to Jerusalem to do just what the Samaritan did. Give everything at his own risk, out of compassion and love for those in front of him in need. It's impossible for us to show this kind of love at all times, but the good news is that Jesus is there to fill that gap for us. Being a good neighbor and entering into the inner spaces with those around us, has it has to be rooted in a source outside of ourselves. When we love those around us, we give them this glimpse of what it is to be known and claimed by their creator. We honor the divine that dwells within both them and ourselves by allowing God's true nature to be lived out, which is love. And if you hear nothing else today, I hope you do hear this. We don't love because we're told to, but because he first loved us. And we don't love out of our own ability and resources, but from the endless depth of the one who loves us. That's how we love our neighbors as ourselves. That's how we love our enemies and not just our friends. That's how we show not just what we're against, but what we're for. That's how we love. And that love draws us ever closer to God. So back to the question that started all off, who is my neighbor? As we discussed before, the very nature of this question works under the assumption that some people are neighbors and some people aren't. But once again, Jesus does his Jesus thing and flips this question completely on his head. So he says, 
Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Who was the neighbor? Jesus takes that original question that asks, who is worthy of my love, and turns it around and instead asks, who are you loving? By flat out rejecting the lawyer's question, Jesus takes the idea of a neighbor from being a recipient to being the giver. In Jesus' worldview, the kingdom view, the assumption is that anyone made in the image of God is your neighbor and therefore worthy of your love. And in case you're unsure, that's everybody. So, so the idea that somebody would not be your neighbor, it just doesn't even compute. It makes no sense in God's kingdom. But by asking if we're being a neighbor, if we're doing our part in loving those around us, we're invited to participate deeper and more fully in God's dream. And through this, we enter more fully into those inner spaces with God. So last night I was on Instagram scrolling, as you do, and I was looking at the stories from one of the accounts I follow, and they were giving some updates from a generosity campaign that they do every now and then. So followers can write in with stories about a person in need. The only rule is it can't be them. It has to be for somebody else. And then other followers can donate uh, to that need. So one story was submitted about um, this friend who had leukemia, and she delayed her treatment until her baby was born. And that baby ended up in the NICU. So now that baby is home, and this person is getting ready to, uh, to go into the hospital for a bone marrow transplant, and she'll spend about a month in the hospital. So this friend who wrote in was asking for like three to $350 to send to this woman so her and her husband could have a weekend away before she goes back into the hospital. The update that we got last night was that over 100 strangers gave to this need. Now, some people gave $25 or more, but most people gave $1 to $5. A total of $648.30 was raised, and that was just one of five needs that was posted all raised by people who have no idea who this woman is. Loving one another isn't hard in and of itself, but it is sacrificial, and it is vulnerable, and it is intimate. And these things can be hard. But when we allow ourselves to enter into these spaces with others and allow others to enter in with us, we experience God in very real ways. All of the law and all of the gospel is summed up in this. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. This is what the kingdom of God is built upon. Let's pray. Lord, may we be a community that loves. May we be people who are known as loving no matter what. Let us not find excuses to leave others out or to pass by, but keep our eyes always open to the needs of those around us. As your word tells us, we can accomplish the greatest things and say the perfect words, but if it doesn't first come from a place of love, then none of it matters. May what we do matter because everything we do or say flows out of the love that we have for ourselves and for those around us. Amen.